look, your, your life actually comes down to 10 or 12 patterns. You know, the pattern of how you wake up, the pattern of how you get ready for bed, the pattern of your family meals. He says, if those patterns have life and are life-giving, then your life will be a good, good one. But if you're, if you think those patterns don't matter and you haven't given no thought or attention to them and they all are kind of destructive, then your life will be gone. Welcome to Hidden Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Father Christian. Every week I interview Orthodox Christians of varying professions. Together we dive into their lives and explore how their faith in Christ has influenced their life and work. It's my hope that these conversations provide you with tools, thoughts, or habits that can better help you cultivate your hidden life in Christ. We are joined today by Dr. Timothy Petitis, the Interim Dean of Hellenic College, Professor of Ethics at Holy Cross Greek Orthodox School of Theology, and the author of his new book, The Ethics of Beauty. In our conversation, we cover politics, sexuality, and marriage, and Dr. Tim's friendship with the author, Jane Jacobs. This is a thought-provoking conversation and one I'm sure you will enjoy. Please bear in mind that this episode was recorded days before the presidential election. Enjoy. Uh, yeah, so since you included it in the, uh, in the opening prayer, what are your thoughts about everything that's going on in America, which I didn't even have in my notes, right? <laughs> but... <laughs> About this election coming up and just the whole 2020 world. I mean, yeah, it's it's been, I feel it's been one one crazy thing after another. I mean, I, 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 th- I think you know, as you as I've gotten older, I certainly trust my instincts more. But uh, at the same time, I'm more aware that, you know, your 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 circumstance and the information available to you is going to you know, determine your sense, you know, determine what common sense is for you. So there's a candidate that I would like to see win, but I'm aware that not everyone wants that person. And, and that some people, in fact, you know, have a strong antipathy towards, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, you know, that's true on both sides. So I think I, I'm trying to be at peace with whomever comes through, knowing that some, some people that I love and respect, a really believe in that guy, and B, really distrusts my guy. So um, since I love and respect them, I think I, I want to kind of give the benefit of the doubt. Maybe I'm, maybe there's something I'm not seeing. I think, you know, every president is going to do some good and, and, and make some mistakes. And that's always true, you know, and, and I think, um, but I don't think we're facing yet, you know, you know, it, the, the right might think that, you know, Biden is, Chairman Mao or or Lenin or something, and the left, you know, thinks that Trump is, you know, Francisco Franco or Mussolini or something. But I, I, I would, I would guess so far we're both wrong about that. It'll just be another four years, and and the Lord can work in different ways. I mean, if look, if if I thought getting really upset about it would make a difference, if that were my calling, my calling, if I were not the Dean of Hellenic College, yeah, maybe I might like take a stand and really get out there and maybe I might run for office myself. But in as much as that's not really where the Lord has placed me, I kind of just have to be somewhat fatalistic about it. I don't feel that I can even donate to a political campaign. I don't think, I don't think professors should do that. 
you know, especially if they're not an academic, if they are an academic administration, I think they should stay out of the fray and, and be neutral arbiters. So that they're not pa- passing on their, their bias to the people they teach or for other reasons? Yeah, I, I think if you, if you refrain from giving, you know, because you are, you know, in a public position of public trust, then, then I think what it, what that trains you to do is to, is to be open-minded with your students who have different, differing views and to foster their development, their development for their own sake and not to try to, you know, recast them in your own image. I don't think priests should give. I mean, I, I think, I don't know that priests should even vote because I think what I'd like to see is a thing where, you know, every, you know, the first Monday night, every four years, you know, the archdiocese, every Orthodox parish in America has a vigil liturgy the night before the election to pray for the Holy Spirit to descend upon the voters and the people. I think if the priest led that, it would have a lot more impact than voting. What's your one vote going to do? I mean, of course, other people shouldn't think that way because they're not priests. But for me, yeah, you're, you know, election day, if at, you know, 5, 6 p.m., you stand before the mother of God with your hands uplifted as a priest, you will have a huge impact on the outcome, much bigger than voting. Maybe you want to vote so you can vote for the local dog catcher. But if you vote for president, then you are kind of implicated, too, in, their, in, in the blood. They will kill somebody in your name. They just will. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two, two thoughts that come to mind. The first is there's a, there's a little small story that says uh, there's this congregation that has been facing um, a drought for some time, and the priest calls the people together, and they said, at 7 p.m. tonight, all of us come to church, and uh, we're going to pray for rain. God's going to work wonders. And everybody comes, and then they pray for rain. And uh, the only person to bring an umbrella is this little girl. <laughs> so the, the, the thought is that if, if people believed that their prayers would work, they would, they would bring the umbrella. There, there, there would be this, this anticipation or this, um, this action that, that reveals or shows that there's a conviction to what they're praying for. And, and uh, the, the reason I bring that up is because you mentioned the, the vigil. I, I wonder if our sense of prayer has been, not I wonder, I, I know that my own sense of prayer has been eradicated by the different things that we have to do. And, and it almost feels like once I can check something, it, it's hard to check something off of, pray, of a prayer list because it's so intense. It seems, it feels so intangible at the time. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, but, but this is just a matter of age. It's not even a matter of faith. I mean, it, it's the, the older you get, the more you, you see that, you know, how decisive prayer is and that it feels like a physical force. And then, then it's not a question. But I, I think, I mean, I think Hellenic College should offer an honorary doctorate every December to the loser or every March or something to the loser of the presidential election, because we should, we should foster that sense of, you know, it's a fair fight and then you move on. It should not it should not be that everything's to the death. Interesting. But, but that's a very Anglo-American way. So even to say that is already to put yourself squarely in the Anglo-American tradition and against the neo-Marxist ultimate ultimism that, you know, they want to turn, you know, one of the things that my book talks about is, as Orthodox, we have a more vivid sense that in the church, we experience heaven on earth, that, you know, the kingdom is we're partaking of it now, but we have less of a sense that we can make through politics or social action, 
dry every tear on earth. You know, there's things are, you're not going to turn this world into utopia. And if you try to, you're just going to make it the opposite. You're going to make it, well, a concentration camp is, is usually what happens. Interesting. Uh, the, um, th- there's, a, there's a priest, Father Stephen Freeman, uh, in his blog, Glory to God for All Things, who says, I've been struggling with this, and, and, and I could be misunderstanding his thoughts completely, but I think it plays into this, where this idea that we have less control than we think we do. So it's like almost like being involved in politics, like what's the point? Essentially, is there is there a contradiction there within you know? Do we have as less control than than? I mean, what what are your thoughts on that? And I know that those are somebody else's thoughts, but I'm I'm really curious how that plays into, especially with this election, because so many people are convicted. You need to vote. You need to vote. You need to vote. And one of my thoughts is the Holy Spirit is going to work regardless of one's action. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, that's a statement. You know, with so much so much subtlety to it, but you you don't know. You know what is the limit of what you should do i think in any in any living system you know this is you know a big theme of of my courses is that there are three kinds of science this is you know chapter 22 of jane jacobs death and life of great american cities there are three kinds of science and the third one is this problems in organic or organized complexity or sometimes we just call that complexity or systems thinking and it's literally the case i mean in those living systems that your control is quite you know, quite just even hard to figure out if there's any. I mean, you you contribute. Yes, I remember my my uh, dissertation director Robin Darling Young saying that this about liturgies. You cannot reform a liturgy. You can just kind of prune it a little bit. You you can't you can't really restart it from the ground up. You don't. It's not a problem in simplicity. So, so so that's just a scientific fact. I mean, of course, you can look at it spiritually, which we should. Sure. As well. What what are the three sciences for for Jane Jacobs? So she gets this from Warren Weaver, who's a name that most people haven't heard of, but he was a guy. He was an important guy. He was he directed where the money went at the Rockefeller Foundation from 1932 on. And since it's said that until the late 1920s, going to the doctor was as likely to harm you as help you. This is that's an exaggeration, but sure. it's really in, in 1932 onward that we begin to understand biological problems. And before that, we had two variable problems, problems in simplicity, you know, where you know one thing directly impacts another. That's where modern science cuts its teeth between 1600 and 1900. And then in the early 20th century, we developed the other extreme uh, of st- you know statist- statistical handling of problems with millions of variables, potentially, or, or more than millions. But that kind of statistical problem or the simplicity, you know, kind of mechanical reduction approach, neither of them are completely, they don't tell the whole story when it comes to living systems. And then when you get to the actual science of living systems to, you know, biology, and you get to a real systems thinking, you discover that doesn't tell the whole story either, that you're not, you know, you're part of the system and it's it's really hard to, to say. It's like walking through a maze. I've heard this phrase in another context. And with every step you take, the walls rearrange themselves. And that's and that can be true in a parish as a living system and a family as a living system. And I, I've, I've noticed that we, we, we recently had a a child and the new addition of a child to this system of, I guess you could call of a family. Thank you. Has, <laughs> has, uh, has altered, has, has created more beauty. Um, but it is, it has changed the way the system as a whole was working previously to, to the child. And I'm sure every new addition to, to the family will do such a thing. Yes. And, and, and in that living complex out of control system, one of the th- one of the things that a father can do that actually makes a difference 
in a kind of simple way is to take all the blame <laughs> for everything, for everything that happens. If, it, if the dad does that, then that that's pretty much his pivot, his, you know, his Archimedean, you know, lever to move the system. If he doesn't do that, it's, it's a little harder. Now, you know, the different styles of masculinity and some men take the blame, but while always insisting it's not their fault, you know, but behind, you know, that's like the duck beneath the surface, the, 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 the feet are moving quite rapidly as they do accept the blame. And I think that's, you know, that's the style of leadership that used to be sort of more, you know, kind of, I don't know, the American man or something. Now, probably we just say it's my fault and don't do anything about it. Um, and then for women, it's something different. It's, you know, talk about this in chapter, I think it's five, and that's this unknowing. It's unknowing that, you know, is the pivot point in a family. Can you expound on that a little more? Yeah, it's a, it's a mystery, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something to do with um, this idea that we should strive to know persons rather than things. And part of that means not seeing people as things and, and, and really guarding <laughs> a sense of their mystery and of their essential goodness. How does that... So, so you said for the father, it was to take on responsibility for the woman is unknowing. How does that relate to what the woman takes on? Um, how does what the father does relate to what the woman does? No, no. You, you, so you said that for, for the father, it's taking on the blame, right? And then, but for the woman, you mentioned this unknowing and you connected the unknowing to this, to the, to this other thought. So I'm, I'm curious. The father, the father has to accept a certain objectification of himself. And, and we see that in popular culture, but the, the woman should, the woman by contrast is resisting the objectification of everyone. Not necessarily so much of herself, herself too, but I mean, she's getting out there. So, so for him, it's kind of, you know, accepting objectification of the self. Like, yeah, here I am. I'm going to just, I will be the sacrificial lamb here. I will be the scapegoat. <laughs> now, 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 there's a way to do that and still hold people accountable. But, uh, and that's what gives holding people account accountable. It's, it's gentleness. But, but ultimately, it's through philotimo that somehow, you know, people see that you're doing that. And then they decide, you know what? Not to do that is kind of it's kind of base and vulgar. I think I think I'll try to be noble. Sure, they start to do it too. So you you spoke a little bit about Jane Jacobs, and I, even as my my former prof professor, you've mentioned a lot about her works and her writing. <laughs> Sorry, Can, I'm I'm curious how did that relationship develop? What are your um... how did my worship develop? It was <laughs> oh my oh you said relationship yes, but it's both. No, go on. Sorry, I didn't. No, no, please. <laughs> I, I, I would love to know how that relationship developed, and and I'm I'm curious to know how your um the ethos that you brought to her work has influenced her work potentially or her thought process at at the very least, and and how has something similar happened with, even with your own writing? Has has the ethos is is there a Dr. Tim Petitis for your work? Oh, that's interesting. Um, so I think. I mean, I, I just discovered her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, you know, in a, in a bookstore. And I'd never heard her name or heard anything mentioned about her ever, 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 ever. It was a complete, you know, black box for me. And I think that kind of made it better because then I opened, you know, page one of The Death and Life and she just, it's so well written. I mean, she's such a master of... American English prose writing. She's, she's such a beautiful writer. There's a, 
an economy, um, a fervency, uh, a clarity, a lack of histrionics. I mean, it's just something fantastic. There's nothing like it. And, and in that book, she lays out you know, what order looks like in a city neighborhood. And, and I don't, there's nothing been written like this in the history of the human race. I mean, it's, it's so... It's such a fantastic achievement. It's you know one of the great books for sure. Who is she writing to? Like, what's what's her what's her audience? Is it just like these are just her thoughts? And she's like, oh, whoever reads this, or? New Yorkers, New Yorkers. So she's from Scranton. She was from Scranton, PA. I was born in 1916. When she was 17 or 18, or maybe a little older, maybe 20, she she went to New York City. She had a stenographer's degree and a high school diploma, and she and her sister moved there in, in the in the depression, and they made their way. And she. She also somehow enrolled in Columbia and was taking courses part-time there. And anyway, so she 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 found work first as a secretary and then as in editing and then writing. And then she was a full-blown journalist. And I think the magazine she worked for in the 50s was called Architectural Forum. And she was assigned to cover the um, so-called urban renewal, the attempt between 1949 and 1974 to renew American cities by pushing people around and blowing up their houses and stores and churches <laughs> and building housing projects in their place. So it's a, it's a fantastic book because at the end, you know, it, it comes out that she gives you, hey, there's something called complexity theory and that's what I've been doing here. And that's in 1961. So in 1961, we have a full-blown rediscovery, I mean, a re reformulation of a social science, urban planning from the standpoint of complexity theory, right? Most Americans will not hear words like chaos or complexity for another 25 years. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about someone so completely ahead of her time. So, so she was living in New York City, you know, as I said, from 1936 until 68. So her audience is fellow New Yorkers. It's just Americans. Well, I can relate, right? Growing up in New York. <laughs> yes, I forgot. It's, uh, yeah. Um, I, I don't know how true this story is, but uh, there, so there's a movie called Jungle to Jungle. Have you ever heard of? Have you ever heard of this movie? Maybe. No. Anyway, it's an, it's an older, I, I would say, family children's movie. Uh, I, I certainly grew up with it in in the uh, '90s. But um, so this movie is about this this gentleman um, who's divorced his wife uh, because his wife uh, is I think she's a doctor, but she visits at these remote tribes in some remote part of the world. Um, and then he finds out that he, this this businessman in downtown New York finds out that his um, that he actually has a child, this uh, young teenage boy, and uh, this boy has never seen a city, has grown up around trees and plants and yada yada uh, rivers, and he brings him to New York, and it's about him adapting to this life anyway. So um, I, I I rather in, enjoy the, the the movie because it's uh it's very fun as as he adapts to the city life as a whole. But the so this is the part of the story that I don't know if it's actually true. But I I, I did hear that uh, in filming they uh, they did encounter actual um, I don't even know what part of the region it where in the world it was, but the 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 natives to that land uh, who had been living in these straw houses. And they brought them. I think it was the chief or whoever it was over to New York as a as a thank you for their ability to film on their land or on their or or use whatever. And when they landed in New York, they started. Well, I think it was the chief started crying because he couldn't believe that these people lived 
there were no trees. So he couldn't believe that these people lived among all this concrete. Uh, so he was very, very sad uh, about that. And maybe it speaks to the, for, for me, it, 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 New York felt, when I lived there, and this is not to knock New York at all, but it felt so oppressive. Boston, I think, was the first sense that I got when I went to seminary that I got that you can still have a city and make it feel beautiful at the same time. It doesn't have to be this looming, oppressive structure that encompasses 11 million people in, in such a dense location. Well, I mean, I think, you know, downtown Manhattan, I mean, you know, towards the financial district, it certainly is beautiful if you're, is it, you know, driving on, what's that highway in either Brooklyn or Queens, and you look across the water at night, it's it's one of the most beautiful things in the world. And it's, and I think for Jacob, cities were beautiful because of their complexity. They were like, um, like gardens, and they were like, you know, they, they had an unpredictability. And it was, there was something natural about them, deeply natural. One of her points is that a city is to humans what an anthill is to ants, it's, or what nests are to birds. It's how we live. And it's, it's the human way. Of course, in scripture, cities you know, are much more, right? And, and in fact, if we're going to resolve our, our, our environmental crisis, we have to move to cities and we have to you know, leave more of the land either for farming or you know, we can't just chew up land and gasoline running all over the place. And, mm. and, so, and so in her vision, the way we, if we become more moral, we become more human and we become more a part of nature. That's her her vision. She was not religious, but these things are right. But for Orthodox, of course, we see that cities are, you know, scripturally cities are often like the place of sin. And that's true too. Yes. But to, to use one of your points that has been in my mind for, I mean, since seminary years, years ago, was that uh, you said that our call was not to return back to paradise, but to... We don't return to the garden, but we go forward to the new Jerusalem. Which is a city, right? I think you make that point. It's a city. Only Christians and Jews think that paradise is, is urban. Yeah, which, which to, to connect it to the point of politics, makes me uh, even less invested in the, the, the forms of voting or whatever, what have you, the forms of, of authority in this world. And, and maybe that's like a way to absolve... Uh, and not feel guilty, um, absolve responsibility, not feel guilty. But one of my thoughts is like St. Paul says, uh, you are citizens of par- uh, of heaven. Uh, sorry, you're sojourners on, on earth because your citizenship is in heaven. Right, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the one which is to come. But it, it, it's, it works both ways. Because heaven is a city, then it, it matters what happens in our human civilizations, and we have mm-hmm. to work towards them. I just think that for priests in particular, that... You know, they, they, these three these three modes of life in in cities, the commerce, government, and priesthood. Or you know, priest is a priest, and it'd be a shame if, in the, desiring to be the best political agitator, he loses the power that's unique to him. You know, or, or ignores that. He, a priest can still vote. I'm not saying, I and mean, he can still say things on his Facebook about this stuff. I mean, clearly, I think r- right now, I mean, the the real story in this country is that we we don't have. We don't have a place we can go to to kind of discuss what's true. And instead, we've just retreated into these two parallel ghettos, and we're dealing with alternate realities. And, and that, that, makes it, that makes it hard to know the good that the other side has to offer. And that's why I'm not going to panic if they win, because they're kind of hidden to me. I don't know what the heck they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like you really see that with the with the I saw that at least with the presidential debate. We were at a 
at a family vacation. I think we watched about 20 minutes of it. The first one? Like, yes. The first? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Before we were like, we should pray right now. <laughs> so we did Vespers afterwards. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do a paroclesis. Yes. Turn the sound off and do a family paroclesis and probably be more. I mean, I really salute people who can listen to those things. I mean, it's, you know, first of all, I do not want to see the Trump sausage being made. I mean, whatever good he does or doesn't do, I certainly don't want to observe a certain a single rally or anything like that. That's for me personally. But I feel the same way about biden like just don't tell just don't make me listen to any speeches <laughs> and, and good luck yeah yeah <laughs> oh lord oh. uh so so you you read her book you found it fascinating um how did it where did that go from there so it wasn't initially life-changing it was just i mean it was life-changing in the sense that i thought well, well, how, how can the most important book you know not be central to my university education where, where was this thing and, um, you know, and I later felt even more viscerally, you know, probably with fewer implications in a way, but more viscerally with Christopher Alexander's The Timeless Way of Building. I mean, those are two books. I'm like, what, why did I, what, what if I got a, a college degree, a master's degree, most done with a PhD? These are the books. Can I just go back to high school and start with these and, you know, just live a different life or something? But so with, with Jacobs, it was it was later. It was during my comp, maybe three three years later or something during my comprehensive exams that I understood that she had inadvertently described living cities, the organically complex city, in terms that could only be described as liturgical. That her 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 work showed scientifically that the city is a kind of liturgy, and that changes everything and that it raises questions about i mean it, it gives you it reconciles ultimately science with religion it shows you know just something tremendous about religion you know like it's it's dependence on ritual how how are you defining uh, liturgy as it relates to the city just so that i understand what what aspects of the city are liturgical yeah it's for for her the city had for the city to be healthy it has to be truly the work of the people. Everyone living there needs to be free to bring forth their plans and ideas and, you know, unless they're criminal or something, but everyone needs to be involved. Everyone needs to have access to capital. Everyone should have, you know, the same political rights. Everyone should be free to have an impact on their space, the design of their home, their interior of their home, their neighborhood. Another way in which it's the work of the people, she says that the, the, the complexity in cities arises because pools, pools of use can form. Like lots of people are walking down the streets. So, you know, an, an, Armenian, an Armenian bakery is going to find the Armenians or the Armenians are going to find it. And and so again, it's together, we're able to generate diversity that in turn, everyone else benefits from. So, so those are two simple ways. But also in her famous passage in about page 50 of the book is, you know, she called it the ballet of the street that, you know, what is the, what is the, what is the, the kind of pattern in space and time that unfolds on her street at 555 Hudson Avenue in you know, Greenwich Village every day. And she describes it, and 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 it really is something beautiful. It's a it's a, a procession and a return. 
and it's it's never exactly the same but the shape is recognizable which is why we need Manoli McGinnis to explain what the heck is happening with the Tipicon every day in chapel at Holy Cross because it's never exactly the same <laughs> but the shape the shape is there yeah yeah I, I so here's here's a thought right you're you're talking about um war is not peace uh, sorry the opposite of war is not peace and the opposite of war is liturgy and now you're talking about the city as this liturgical procession going to and returning. The first thought that comes to my mind is uh, the commute to work, to and from work, as as the procession, the, the natural procession. But that procession is hell for a lot of people. Um, isn't that... Well, it's a, it's a sign we've got a bad liturgy going. You know, we don't want to be in that liturgy. We want a nice one. But But there's going to be some kind of a procession that just always is, always has been in cities, and that's... You know, that's, that's their strength. Now, some people turn that commute into their strength, right? Like they go to great trouble to make sure that they commute by train and the headphones, or maybe they even able to, you know, do a lot of email or, you know, become something or, or people who drive might do certain things with books or, you know, audio books or whatever. And, and it really becomes a life-giving part of their overall day. I've always felt that, you know, what we really needed is a CD or, a, I mean, a, a recording of just a couple of saints, you know, doing compline and just, you know, or, or the morning prayer. So if you're too exhausted, just put that on the, the, the player, you know, in, as you're driving into cars and into, into work. So your morning prayers can happen at least in that form. Yeah. Yeah. It's transforming your, uh, your car into a mobile university or even a, a mobile chapel. So, so Christopher Alexander, you know, he, his, his take on that liturgy is look, your, your life actually comes down to 10 or 12 patterns. You know, the pattern of how you wake up, the pattern of how you get ready for bed, the pattern of your family meals. He says, if those patterns have life and are life giving, then your life will be a good, good one. But if you're, if you think those patterns don't matter and you haven't given no thought or attention to them and they all are kind of destructive, then your life will be gone. So I, I think, you know, any kind of pattern in our life, we have to ask ourselves, is it life-giving? Is it, you know, is it, is it, is it beautiful? Is it good? Is it true? I, I th thank you for sharing that. That's, that's been some of my thoughts on my to-do list is establish a routine you know, for waking up and, and going to sleep, but pattern or rhythm might be a better word or, or use for that. But those are the those are the points of the liturgy from which we can draw the liturgy of one's life, uh, from which we can draw a source of peace or stability. And the, the the military has a lot to teach us. You know, just just have a checklist for every you know evolution. I think this might be the term they use for every evolution. You know, the evolution from bed to you know to car on the way to work. What what is what's got to happen? You know, and think about it when you're not half asleep. Think about it when you, when you have someone you love and you know you're calm. You know, of course, because you're a sinner, your initial description will be impossibly absurd and it will be you know oh i'll do these 58 things and you know that's a sign that we chase vanity we don't chase true beauty we don't 
you know, we're not simple. And then you learn the hard way and then you say, oh, I couldn't keep my pattern. And then you question that your, your willpower was weak and you feel bad about yourself and you give up and it's, you know, whatever. There's a, there's a quote I, I, I heard not too long ago called the, the devil is the, the merciless perfectionist. When he wants to be. And then, and then, you know, once you start, yeah. And then when he wants you to be lazy, he's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I would agree. I mean, he's not he's not only those things. I think he's he's that aspect for for some people. And I feel like I've been I have been hit with that before, not because I do things perfectly, but because I, I, I outline what I perceive, which you have described as vanity, what I perceive as perfection. In other words, I, I was at seminary. I was like, oh, I'm going to wake up and do this, this, this and this. And it's going to be the most productive day ever. And I'm going to repeat that for 365 days. And you'll have a, the most automated, productive machine that the face of this planet has ever seen. And then two days in, I'm uh, not only falling into sin, but I'm, I'm also speaking to my spiritual father because of the deep depression that comes on board uh, on me that says, yes. look at you. No. Yeah. We're all the same, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we suck. <laughs> the human race. But... <laughs> But I, I saw years ago in a, in a description of land use planning, I don't know, I wish I could remember where I saw this or who wrote it. It was in some, maybe it was in the Atlantic or New Yorker, but it said every region, now, now this is land use planning, should have urban, farm, and wildness. And I think that's true of your life. There should be things that are more ordered. There should be things that are kind of in between, but there's got there's got to be some give. There's got to be some... I think this is true of your house. There are parts that are very precise of the home, parts that are getting messy. And then there's a room where you just dump stuff, dump junk, and, and once a year you clean it up. You need that junk room, most people do, unless they're 110% <laughs> German. They, they need, they need, there needs some, to be some place that's kind of the dumping ground. And I think there's, this is true in a life. The problem is we tend to go to one extreme or the other. Everything has to be city or everything has to be. We just give up. Everything becomes wild and not uncivilized. The junk drawer is common to all, almost all households. So, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I don't remember. I mean, I'm, I'm part German, so I don't remember in Germany if they have I wasn't the sort of person to go opening drawers. I don't know. Do they, do they have junk drawers too? I have to ask them. Or in Japan, maybe there's no junk drawer in Japan. <laughs> or in what's the name of the um, that wonderful woman who writes about cleaning your house? Cleaning your house? Um, oh, whatever, the declutter person. She was a Shinto priestess or kind of a guide at a Shinto temple. Maybe she doesn't have a, a junk drawer. Oh, is it that that blue blue covered book, Declutter or something? Something like that, yeah. It's good. It's good. It's a beauty first book. Oh, nice. So I like it. <laughs> I, again, I I really want to touch on a little bit about the this the, the relationship because I'm I'm personally very curious about it. You, you read her book, you you read more, you get into it. Um, there's you're learning more from her. At, do do you reach out to her? Do you meet her in person? What does that What does that look like? Yeah, so I think I think it might have been let's say 1995 or 96 that I read her death in life and was just, you know, dropped everything for a week and just was mesmerized and talked about it to everyone. And I had no sense of the religious significance. And I didn't really pick up on the world shattering importance of chapter 22, that you have this revolution in, in how we think based on complexity theory. So it was great. And it didn't, I, I, I 
purposely didn't read anything else by her because I felt it somehow would be wrong. I don't know what was my thinking there. And then in 1999, I was doing my comprehensive exams in the fall. And there was a question I, I didn't know the answer to. Anyway, it was terror. Like, oh my God, five years of PhD effort up in smoke. And somehow it popped into my mind the idea that Jane Jacobs saw, maybe this was spring of 99, that, that cities, that it, for Jacobs, time is a raw material in cities. Then I decided to do something with that for my dissertation. I wasn't sure what. That's when I noticed the title of the book, Death and Life of Great American Cities, and said, oh my God, it's, the whole thing is a liturgy. So, um, so then I went to my dissertation director and I said, you know, I mean, we had a, a profound conversation, but not to get into that. And she said, you're going to write her a letter. So I did. And that was in late 99. And if you want to contact an author, just send a letter to their publisher and usually gets through. And then, and she answered in early 2000. And that's when she said that, you know, I was the best interpreter of her work that she was aware of, and that I was showing her what her own work meant. Um, I think in that in late 99, it's when I also just tried to read all the other books as much as I could and just blew me away. I mean, just so much insight, so much everything, you know, in those in those pages for someone who's interested in economics, like I always was unbelievably great stuff. So um, she said in her first letter back to me that she was going to be in Washington soon, and we should meet up. So so that started 2000 until she died in 2006 that we were I wouldn't say exactly friends, but I went to the house, you know, three, four times in Canada and saw her another two, three times in Washington. And there were some phone calls. And what's her demeanor like? Her demeanor? What, what, yeah. What was she like as a person? Perfect. She was perfect. And she, <laughs> she was a saint in some ways. She was an atheist saint. She had, uh, she's a very common person. I, mean, I remember one time, uh, well, the first time I saw her, I think it was like, you know, the ratty sweater, purple grandma pants, a walker. I don't know how old she was then, 80 or something. And she was at the National Building Museum. I, I think that's the first time I saw her. And she was working her way towards the stage. And then she just speaks with just perfect candor, just totally authentic. And it was really cool. And everyone, everyone who asked her a question had like a, had a uh, you know, people got at the end, got up and she always, every, in every case that someone questioned her, she teased out their hidden agenda instantly. It was, yeah. And, and so, so there, there was, I mean, you can't make too much of this stuff and it sounds like I'm crazy, but the National Building Museum is like, it's like this, this vast interior space with these huge Greek columns. So I'm like, oh my God, it's the, and it's the temple. And then, and then she's sitting there and we're all there because we know she's getting older and she's going to die. So we're all there sort of in anticipation of her death. There's all these questioners trying to trick her because they want her basically, they want her to sort of give a stamp of approval for their agenda. And then she, she trips up every questioner and turns it on them and exposes their motivation in a very gentle, but firm, but, you know, evident way. And I was like, this is freaky. This is what it was like, you know, in, in the final, you know, year of Christ's life. But she's just a person. I'm not trying to make a saint out of her in, the, in any sense. I'm not going to make an icon of her. I'm not, you know, she's just a person. But she was really smart and really, really moral. Thank God. The, the, it, I, you, I mean, you mentioned it, but it, it definitely reminds me of when uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trying to trip up Christ. Uh, once he's, I think he's back in Jerusalem at this point, and they're asking him, do we pay taxes to Caesar? And 
no matter what he responds, it's like I, I think that's I think that was the last question before they before the scripture says, and they no longer questioned him in public because they couldn't you know couldn't find anything and any any fault in him. Well, thank thank God. I'm I'm how beautiful to have developed a, a relationship like that with an author that you have you had met but uh, had never met at the time. And uh, do you, do you as of right now do you think that there's anybody or any of your students or any people in your life that have read your work or during the process of writing it that gave you deeper insights in other words was like i asked asked before was is was there a dr tim is there a dr tim to your to your work to my jane jacobs um that's that's something to think about you know i i think i think you know i'm more of a popularizer you know than she she really was doing original research in kind of essay form about cities and economies and she presented it in a very readable way, but you can see that, I mean, from what I can tell, you know, you know, from 1961 until now, no city has really understood what she said about urban order and tried to implement it. The, the exceptions would be kind of, you know, new urbanist movements, or I always like to, I've always liked to call him the most important man in America. And anytime I'm given a talk, Charles Marone of, of Strong Towns, these, uh, there are people out there kind of doing her stuff, but certainly I'm the only one who saw the interconnection of all things there, that it was all one thing. And, and that I didn't really understand until after she died. So, so that was, she died tragically young, in my view, she was 89. I say tragically because her mother lived to be 103 or something like that. So I, I, I thought I had more time and that made me lazy. But after she died, certain things became more evident to me about how all the work interconnected. But anyway, as, as far as I'm concerned, I think, you know, hey, beauty first. It's pretty simple. It's a slogan. You don't need a, a Tim Petitus to come along. <laughs> and, uh, it's just right there. <laughs> this is what we got. That's what I'm, I think all my students get it. And they, they all teach me something about it. You know, it's, it's a work in progress. I don't compare myself to Jane Jacobs. I mean, she's really, was really something she was the most important intellectual of the 20th century and 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 i would say no one would say that except me <laughs> she really was because she showed how love um was again necessary to the scientific project right there in 1961 she said problems in organic complexity as a matter of course as a matter of fact cannot be understood by people who don't love them that's the end of the enlightenment right there in, the, in, in chapter 22 of Death and Life. Nothing else. I mean, Einstein is nice and all that, whatever. But, the, but this is real stuff here. You know, that's, that's, that's the revolution. It's like uh, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom who says, there's nothing that you can say or do or contribute unless you love them, unless you see the, the, beautiful, the beautiful within them. Yeah, she showed that why that was true scientifically too. And she said, she said in terms of city planning, the hardest place to start is where there's nothing. And that's that's a comment I try to make in all my seminary classes. If you look at your people and see nothing, your parish and see nothing, the sinner before you and see nothing, just forget it. You you have to see the beauty and like you said, the beauty and and the soul that's that's there, the effort that has been made. The you know. Even people willfully sinning are often, you know, putting quite a bit of cleverness into it. And, and there's always some dimension of self-sacrifice. <laughs> it's something, something there that we can start with. 
can work with this. So we've we've kind of beating around the bush uh, for quite some time about it, but um, I'm I'm glad to be able to speak to you about your book, The Ethics of Beauty. Here, what I've read has been personally for for me it has been uh, it has been revealing. I I feel like you've offered thoughts that um, in in words that I've I've had vaguely in my mind, but never been able to express concretely. If I could just read your works, your words back to you really quick. Christians should be extremely cautious about truth-first methods whenever approaching issues of social justice or ethics, as well as when attempting to heal the brokenhearted. When we do not begin with beauty, it is all too easy to miss the full complexity of human personhood and thus to diminish and dissect men and women made in the image of God. I love that because uh, I mean what 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 I, what I'm what I'm reading here is that you're kind of like what therapy does, and I think you you expound on that a little bit more. It dissects the person a little bit more, but the person who has suffered trauma, in a sense, can't be dissected further because they've experienced, right? Am, am I getting am I getting those thoughts right there? Because the the person who has been who has been traumatized has already been dissected to such an extent i mean i i you know it's the uh uh, i mean the one criticism the book has gotten is that you know i don't do a good turn to psychotherapy in this country i I think that um like like you you don't you don't speak about it you mean or that i i people are afraid that if they read my someone reads my book they'll be afraid to go to therapy afterwards I think they should be afraid, and to some degree, we should be afraid of going to confession. I mean, with the wrong person. So I'm not, you know. Um, I mean, l- let me go back to something else you just said. You said that you know these were v- ideas that you you'd had yourself, right? I think you know what the ethics of beauty is, as what that book is. It's a it's a, it's an act of massive cultural recovery. It it's an act. I mean, it's a, it's it's an attempt, and perhaps you know, largely successful attempt, to recover a lost or voiceless culture. In a sense, it's it's that culture, the, the beauty first way, is the universal human culture until the Enlightenment. Not really. I mean, even with the pre Socratics, you know, it's this detent this this colder approach to knowledge of the self and then that starts already it's a it's a an entailment of urbanization so it's already in the cities of western asia minor and the pre-socratics but the but the way in which orthodoxy while accepting philosophy and intellectual analysis folded that into the the deeper and older beauty first approach that is something we did not have the language to describe. That's what the book does. It says, here now is the language now. And it's nice to write it now because, you know, the West has kind of gone even further and kind of turned on itself and whatever. Because now we're not just defending the East, let's say. We're also defending the West. So, so because we're, we're saying, once you know there's a third kind of science, you realize, you know what, we need the other two also. So yeah, we we need therapy. We need analysis. You know, the 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 therapist is like you know I said there's Socrates. You know that all learning is remembering. You know if you know if you know the good, you'll do it. You know it's it is it's a it's a mind based process. You know the church has incense, the church has art, the church has music. It has something 
that involves the body on a, on a, on a more holistic level. And the church understands, maybe she's the only place that understands how to do intellectual analytical work within the confines imposed by healthy shame. Hmm. If, if I could just uh, offer a thought is that when, when, you're, when we're talking about beauty first and, and even that little small section that I just uh, I, I mentioned there earlier, it's, uh, it, it reminds me of how, much, of how much beauty can come from simple confession. Uh, because, and I, I can't speak to therapy. I've never, I don't, I don't, I've maybe done a marriage counseling, a few sessions and, and whatnot, or the psych evaluation for seminary. Those are my, to the extent that I've been, I've been exposed to, uh, to therapy. The, but, but my thought process is that in, in a confession, we're not there to dissect, as you're saying, the human being any further. It's, it's a complete offering of what has been jumbled up and, and the priest, in my experience, I'm not saying this is the same for every confession, in my experience with my own spiritual father, in offering confession, all I've done in confession, all I've said are the things that I've already done. And somehow it's I'm restored and ordered in, an, in a way that is completely different than from when I first walked into the confessional room or the church. And I feel like that's the isn't that the beauty that the one of the one of the one of the signposts of, of a beauty first approach. We're not we're not looking for truth. We're not calling the other person a sinner. But when when we see a sinner repenting, there's as much joy in heaven. Well, it's not beauty only. You know, it's beauty first. And it's not that you know we're not after truth or or morality. We certainly are. But we are trying to um, not approach these in a demonic way. Not approach these you know through thinking that we're gods, I mean, that's what I mean by demonic, and, and sort of it's some cold objectivity, analyze, you know, to get the truth and then prescribe what the person should do. This is, this is not given to us. What's given to us is to have some awareness of ourselves as a, as a fearful mystery, and the person in front of us in every encounter as also a fearful mystery. And then to know that, you know, we neither of these mysteries can kind of come to fruition and nor can the relationship without the intervention of Christ and the Holy Spirit. So, you know, in the light of that fact, you know, we become dependent and we become, there's an epiclesis, you know, we're invoking mercy on this situation. Now, I could say those exact words in a secular context and, you know, people might love to hear, yes, I'm a fearful mystery. The church is able to accept the fearful mystery of ourselves and, the, and also know that, you know, the person is a wretched sinner <laughs> and really kind of pathetic. And, you know, Father Sophroni <laughs> and his autobiography talking about, you know, this kind of his spiritual awakening and his, his long prayers. And, and, you know, it all came down to an awareness of the, the infinite majesty and holiness of God. He says, and I, he says, a pitiful monster. <laughs> so, the, the church is, is able to, um, to use that language of human, you know, greatness without, you know, this isn't, you know, Oprah. This isn't, you know, sorry, Oprah. This isn't, you know, some new age thing. Uh, we're still, you know, we're a mess. We're laughable. We're tragic. There's a lot of thing, other things going on there. So, certainly, you know, some analysis is, is certainly going to be necessary, but can it be within that, within the realm of what, a beauty first. One, th one thing I, I, I was particularly drawn to in the, in the first chapter was this idea that uh, these all engulfing 
are, if I'm not mistaken, are the words that you use. This, these all engulfing experiences that also procure trauma from are uh, unravel the character. They um, they present heretical truths. And okay, so now we're switching to not an encounter with beauty, but an, an encounter with a traumatic experience, which I think is yes. I mean, it's the it confirms the reality of the beauty first way, but it's it's ugliness first. Yeah, but keep keep going. I, I didn't mean to cut cut you off. Just no, 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 no worries. It, you you you're relating that to war, but then very briefly you relate that to um, to intimacy between a, a man and a woman, sex before marriage. I had never, and I'm not here to boost your ego, but I've never heard it about it in in that light because I think it's um. You don't. You don't even only experience it. You don't even only have to experience it within the context of a of a sexual promiscuous encounter with a physical being. I feel like the heretical truths are experienced even in, in today's age with pornography. When you're talking about these heretical truths that are being revealed, is that the moment that you should be most intimate, the moment that you should there should be some sort of the, the climax of the of this union results in less knowing of each other, less communion, and a complete separation. So yeah, I, I think I should be careful there because uh, the, the uh, marriage, the culture around marriage has broken down. The economics around marriage are in utter ruins, perhaps irrecoverable. And the religion around marriage is also completely out of touch. I think we have to distinguish, you know, without you know, implying, you know, moral relativism, but some things are relatively worse. We have to distinguish between what happens in the life of a of a couple when they determine that they are now married and they are sleeping together and this is their life. This is their, they're not, you know, maybe they are hiding it, but maybe they're not. This is the reality and it's, it, it is fully intended in as much good faith as they have in an innocent, non-religious way as a lifetime commitment. And the church has always respected, you know, civil marriage, for example. And that's what we have now a version of. This is something different than, you know, the, um, than hooking up through an app or, you know, certain other things that, that can go on. And I think we certainly, from the church's perspective, at a minimum, and, and we can go far beyond the minimum, at a minimum, we can say for a young couple that loves each other, to become fully intimate outside of marriage is very dangerous for them because marriage is a social institution and it requires social support. It's good if everyone knows that we're married and it's public and it's blessed and it's there's rings. You're married anyway. Now, why don't they just get married? Because the culture, religion, and economics around marriage have completely ruined. And what ruined them? Wasn't Karl Marx and you know Antifa. It was capitalism. <laughs> And it's left everything in, in, you know, everything in shreds. Think it was capitalism that ruined marriage? Completely, completely. It's everything, you know, everyone is down to, um, everyone is torn apart by the power of compound interest. <laughs> everyone is just, you know, well, you can't get married until you're, I mean, it's, it's, it's also, it's con concomitant, you know, consumerism and just, it's this hugely disruptive force capitalism has it's just torn apart all the old all the old bounds you know why why it's it's hard to know i cannot unpack the psychology of parents you know what is it that you what is it that you're thinking you know when you're a high school or college age kid let's say you're a college age kid that you'd rather have them 
in a sort of secret, you know, marriage rather than just get married? What's the issue there? I don't, I'm not a parent. I'm not going to judge or speculate. I don't, I don't understand that. What is that? I don't know what that is. So, so what if they're 22? Who cares? So what if they're 19? Well, of course, you could say, not only do I not want you to get married, but I think it's wrong for you to be having relations. But I don't think that's what we do say. I think we say, hopefully this won't last. And you'll marry someone of closer to your social status or what have you later on in a more respectable way. Okay, fine. Maybe they're right and I'm wrong. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't see it. I'm not seeing what that is. Now, it's also there's a lack of faith in, in the part of the children as well. And there's a lack of faith. In the, so there's a lot happening. But in any case... The issue is, do we, should we think of sex outside of marriage as equally destructive as a traumatic experience like war? No. Murder and destruction, I mean, these are terrible things. However, willful and, and deliberate, you know, pattern of hookups can surely unravel a person psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and lead to death. That's just a fat physical fact. And at least to, or to barrenness which is another kind of death. It's another kind of suicide. Well, I, I appreciate it that you brought that up there. Uh, even though it's, it's, it's largely in the context of war, you're, you're speaking of, of the trauma of war, but you bring up very subtly this, this topic that I feel many people find it difficult to explain. You don't want to condemn people that are um, engaging in... Uh, in a hookup culture? Yes, I condemn them completely. Mm. Knock it off. Mm. Grow up. Respect the power of what you're doing. Respect the power of who you are. You can create a new human being through sexuality. What, whom do you love? What do you love? Who are you? Okay, I don't condemn. Some people are just total babies. I mean, it's so immature. I, I understand that. And then a lot of these babies make a baby, and suddenly it turns out they weren't babies at all. They're ready to get married, and they do. So, so I mean, it's a qualified condemnation. But you know, if you have these apps on your phone, you need to just just throw your phone in the trash. Just live without your phone for a year. Look people in the eye. Open your Bible. I like that. Thank. Yeah. No. 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 no yeah, absolutely. I'm just being kind of you know extreme on that point, just to just to get attention. But yeah, go on. I'm. Uh, I'm. 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 I'm appreciating that because it's. Uh, it's. Um, I feel like one of the things that I've that I that I've noticed is that we don't. It's hard to realize the treasure that we have. It's. It's hard to realize the the pearl that we are or that we have early on in life and it becomes easier I'm, I'm guessing i hope i hope as as we get older no it becomes worse unless right if you're in christ time will work for you if you're outside of christ time will work against you it's not it's not that's like it's like saying the opposite of war is not peace it's not war is absent everything's fine peace requires the work of liturgy and if you want time to work on your side you know it's like fi financially no it just gets worse unless you're in the right investments, let's say, well, money's not my thing, but I mean, I'm just saying, if you're investing in Christ, if you're showing up to liturgy frequently, yeah, time is on your side. You will become, you will have elder-like wisdom at certain points, you know, certain needed moments without even, you know, becoming a monk or a nun. But if you're completely just outside, then yeah, I suppose if someone's praying for you, but no, you just things just get worse. In your, if you have a low self-conception and you act on that, then your, your, your low self-conception will get worse. Why are you using the word low self-conception as opposed to low self-esteem? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But, I, but, you know, what I want for people to have 
is so much love and communion in their life that they don't think about the, themselves at all in a way. I mean, they don't, they're not analytical in that sense. They're automatic. There's an exuberance. I don't, I'm not going to argue with the low self-esteem person that they're, you know, better than they think. I mean, that's a fact, but I don't think that matters. I don't think that, I don't think it was a misconception that got us here. I think I just want them to fall in love with someone or something, equine therapy, whatever it takes. I want them to fall in love with something outside themselves for long enough that they can stop picking at that scab that was inflicted on them by circumstance and let it heal and just realize I'm just an ordinary person. I'm not particularly great. I'm not particularly bad. I'm just a guy. But let me tell you about Tom Brady and the Patriots this year. <laughs> let them fall in love with something outside themselves. <laughs> yeah. Ideally, that person being Jesus Christ or... This is a hierarchy. You know, I'll, I'll take anything. That's why I said equine therapy. If it's the horse and anything is a start and anything is a participation and anything now time is working for you. Back in uh, 2017, I think to 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 bring the point up more of what of what you're saying in 2017, I was going through a um, a rather very tough depressive period of my own life. It was very small, but a lot of things had culminated to to that to that to that point. And uh, in December of 2017, I told my wife, "I need I need to serve something outside of myself." I didn't express it quite in this way, or I didn't quite say I need to love something outside of myself, but this is essentially what I needed for my own well-being and I kind of knew that, you know, had the thoughts and ideas, I just not the right word. So we got a dog. And I had to it was it wasn't easy, but I had to um <laughs> we got a puppy at that, right? So it's like we're we're taking the the puppy out because we have an at an apartment we're on the second or third floor and we're taking the puppy out every two or three hours in the middle of the night or whatever. It's like having a baby to some extent for the first six months. But that that cured so much. It was it was a long enough period where I'm not focused on the negative aspects of the woes of my life, which are really incomparable to some to somebody else's. Like they're they're not even you you can you cannot compare them. Because they're so minimal. They're so mundane. But it was long enough for me to be able to leave that that period. I think you know. I love I love therapy. I, I've gone to therapy. I probably will again in the future. I just feel that you know there needs to be something additional. And also, you know, every therapist you know is a person and they're different. And I think you know there are apparently you know dozens of different approaches therapeutically. And that's I want to acknowledge that too. I don't want to turn people off from this or something. And I you know, but but certain things. It's like. Christopher Alexander in The Timeless Way of Building, he says, if you want to make a flower, you don't get tweezers and start gluing together cells. You know, you plant a seed. And if you want to, if you want a healthy soul, you cannot assemble this thing, you know, from parts. You have to plant the seed in you of love for Christ. I mean, now speaking just to an Orthodox audience, you have to plant within you a love for pilgrimage plant within you a love for the Eucharist. I know that that seems inefficient and slower. And we want, as Americans, we're efficient and we want mass production perfection to just have someone get in there and fix you. But ultimately, you know, you have to fall in love with someone or something and you have to start making 
effort on behalf of the beloved. That is your thing. That is your path, beauty, then goodness, and you will become true. This is your future. This is your life. This is your destiny. No one, whether you're the victim of racism or trauma, no one can change your eternal value in God. And we can talk about that, but I can tell you that at the end of the day, you're going to have to make a fool of yourself <laughs> as you serve others. <laughs> and there's no other path. You're going to have to become the fool out of love. And, it, and there's no way to escape that holy foolishness. Looking, uh, looking forward, Dr. Tim, you've, you've, been, you, you've been pregnant with this book for quite some time. And you've given birth now uh, with these thoughts and ideas. And you've given birth. Where are you at mentally, spiritually, physically after delivering this? Right. It took about five months, let's say, to write the book. You know, and there was a period in late 2012. There was, then I was on sabbatical in 2015. And in another two months, two and a half months, did it. The, that was easy. You know, that was all inspiration. That was, it was all new to me. I mean, the ideas were in there. Some of them were formed, but mostly it was you know, a lot of new discoveries came in the writing. There was no outline for the book. There was no outline for each chapter. It just, all that was imposed afterwards, the Roman numerals and all that. But then started the editing and that took, you know, four solid years. And at a certain point, maybe, you know, a year later, the thing went into, it became a um, typeset. And now any change had to be signed off by the editor and the typesetter and the typesetter's corrections had to be double checked. And it became an incredibly drawn out and very painful process. I suppose all artists think this about their editors, most probably most, but you sometimes just feel like they're not understanding anything you're trying to say or do. They're ruining everything. <laughs> and, you know, but, you know, they're right about certain stuff. And so you're, your tender little artistic ego is, you know, just crushed. It's a crushing process. What helped me is I'd been in a rock band before. This was in when I was a senior at seminary for a year or two. I was in a band and I was lead singer, I was the lead singer. And I thought, and and I and it was so painful to you know bring an artistic creation for the critique of others. But that's what you have to do. That's collaboration involves can just involve a lot of humiliation and pain. And I, and I think that's, you know, of course, some people are abusive, but that's not what we're talking about. It's just, it's just almost unavoidable. I mean, if, even if the person were a saint, there might be certain things they'd criticize about your creation, your baby, that just crush you. I mean, even if the, the, the editor were a saint and were doing it in just the right way. But even if they were a saint, different person, anyway, so very painful process. You know, you're kind of, this is kind of cleansing. The book is free now. It's, it's like, I don't have that emotional tie to it. You know, it's, 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 on, it's on its own now. It's out in the world. I can see if people have criticisms or whatever, I don't mind. I'm very surprised, you know, to see people on Facebook or whatever. I don't think I know them, you know, saying great things about the book and describing it as life-changing. I changed my life to write it. So, you know, it makes sense. But the but I but on a day-to-day -day basis, I just kind of forget about the fact I wrote this book. I mean, it's like I just need a break. And now I'm the dean at Hellenic College, and you know, my everyday is thinking about that. And my every night is thinking about beauty first films. And 
and our projects there. I don't really have. Could you could you talk a little bit about the, the school? I can. So Helena College <laughs> <laughs> is the greatest school ever. It actually is one of the greatest schools ever because, I mean, just imagine a chapel that every morning and every night is packed exclusively with young people in their 20s and 30s worshiping. I mean, the, the professors are so, we're so browbeaten by, by everything. We're, we barely make it to chapel a lot, a lot of times, it's true. A lot of times, even the clergy are students who are already ordained. So where else in the world could you find this? And the answer is, to my knowledge, exactly nowhere. Maybe, maybe even St. Vlad's, because they don't have an undergraduate, it's not quite the same. And I think their professors do go to chapel. <laughs> Sorry, we have to cut this from the, but no, it's, it's true. I mean, I think we're carrying a lot of burdens here. So as a young person to be in that context and then to have classes where the professors are genuinely inspired people, I think, and they, they have so much to teach and offer and they're so loving and they're so good. And it's a fantastic place to be, you know, I mean, considering the quality of what's offered, we should not be struggling for enrollment, but we are. And, and of course, you know, now we, we, you know, we're trying to, um, we just re-envisioned our core curriculum, and I think it's really nice. And 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 the seminary happens to be in the same location as uh, the college as well, which is uh, yeah. And, and even that term seminary, it's just it's just weird, you know. Like it's, I like it, Saint Vlad's, and the whole school is the seminary. Everyone who studies there is a seminarian, whether they're male, female, lay, ordained, heading for priesthood, not heading. We're all seminarians. I like that use of the term only because here at Hellenic College, Holy Cross, whatever, whatever we're studying, and, and even if we're just studying psychology as an undergrad or classics, whatever, the school is best experienced if you have some commitment to Christ and some awareness that this campus is will, will make me, will bring me closer to Christ and a better servant of Christ, a better leader in the church. And so, so in a sense, the whole thing is a seminary, even though we don't say that. Um, but yeah, we're the undergrad. Holy Cross is the grad. Um, about 40% of the Holy Cross incoming class will normally be from Hellenic, straight out of Hellenic. They're both great faculties and they both have a lot of, you know, stars on them. And, and the campus is a holy place. I mean, it's just an ontologically, you feel it. Yeah, it's, I think it's kind of a calling to study at Hellenic, but I think it's a calling. Well, it's a calling I want more people to have to come. I want to I'd like to bring in 50 students a year. That would be about as much as capacity as we have in the dorm anyway. 50 freshmen a year would be nice. I, I went to seminary, to, to, to Helena College Holy Cross. I was there for seven years straight. And uh, it, was, it was a paradisical, disical, paradisical uh, feeling every single day. I mean, there, there were challenges, don't get me wrong. It's not like heaven on earth or... Uh, but in a sense, it was the the aspect of worshiping every twi twice a day for orthros and vespers is something um, beyond words. Not to mention that talking about compound interest, like we did earlier, right? Uh, the more you attend, the more it influences you. I've I learned so much of of my, I feel like my ethos as a as a Christian was was formed within the context of the chapel. Um, I wrote about this in, in, in a small reflection. 
or the feast day of our school at September September fourteenth, the exaltation of the of the Holy Cross. But uh, so what, what what the teachers what the teachers do for the mind, the chapel does for the heart of a person at the school, and uh, it was it was it was and continues to be such. Um, a beautiful place, a place that I've called home. I think it's one of the, I, I know I lived in my parents' house, you know, before that, but uh, it's one of the places that I've called home ever since. Uh, and it always feels like coming back to this, to this garden uh, whenever I'm back on campus, um, except the geese, the geese are, <laughs> that's, that's. Uh, I want to release a, a wolf on campus to chase down the, the geese or something to drive them away. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course it, it is a place of struggle. You know, yeah. my, my classmate, yeah. when I came to seminary, the first person I met, and he always reminds me that he, I was the first person he met, is Metropolitan John of Korcha, whom, you know, is, is so beloved in Albania and by all who know him. I was lucky. I came in 91. So I think in my entering class, we had at least two and maybe four students who came from formerly communist countries and had been tortured for their faith. Oh. So, so tortured or imprisoned or exiled or threatened or, you know, the whole nine yards. And so that was, that was, you know, it's the place to be. All the seminaries are great. You know, been to St. Tecons, St. Philad's. I would love to go to St. Herman's. I want to do I I want to create a study abroad for Hellenic where a student can spend a semester at Kodiak college, which is university of Alaska campus on Kodiak Island. It's a, it's a, 10 minute drive from the St. Herman's seminary there. I, I, so they're all great. I mean, seminaries are holy places. I mean, people come, you know, with, with that fire and it, it, it's awesome. But like you said, it's, it's, there's still struggle. We're, we're there to work and we're, we're there to be tempted and to, you know, fall and to like learn and be more careful next time or. Yeah. 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 And what, what I, what I love about Holy Cross and continue to love is that it is, it is the, the the source of where our, our our priests our clergy come from, with with the great faculty that we have there, which is in many respects why we have a lot of great clergy as well. So thank God for that. But w- one of the thoughts that come to my mind, and I think it in a sense pertains to to a lot of this. I was at uh, I was at Pasca at the monastery of Gregory on Monathos, and there are two or three seminarians there meeting with Elder George of Blessed Memory. And he says to us seminarians, he says, we don't need any more monastics in his very gentle, gentle voice. We don't, we don't just need priests either, but we need our holy priests. Mm. Holy priests. That's what you need. That's what the world needs. That's what America needs. Well, it's, it's all relative, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to disagree with an Athenite, but you know, to be, to be baptized is to be sanctified. And one thing I always stress in class whenever I can is that in the writing in the fifth or sixth century, Dionysius the Areopagite says, "When does theosis begin? It begins when the pagan leaves his sets foot out of his house to go to the church and be enrolled as a catechumen." There is a sense in which theosis describes properly only you know the state of the person kind of glowing with the uncreated light, and there are people like that. And in fact, our next film is about one. But um, theosis also describes all Christians to some extent, and and. Priesthood, the priesthood is holy and, but no, I don't mean to cut you off. Yes, we would like to, but you know, we have to be careful. I mean, you know, you come to campus and you've got to make it to chapel and make it to dinner and you, you just do your homework and, you know, and then you fall in love with this person or 
she doesn't fall in love with you or wh whatever happens, you know, in your struggles with your friends or they're making too much noise in the dorm or a professor says something that scandalizes you, you don't understand. <laughs> That's just life. But some, like you said, but, you, but you're investing and time is on your side now. You know, pilgrimage is so vital. For the glory of God, let's come back. Let's hopefully, hopefully, you know, the book, The Ethics of Beauty, available at stnicholaspress.net and nowhere else, um, you know, it is something that's, that's helpful for people. I think it, you know, the initially, you know, it's just people said, well, I've never heard my traumatic experience described. So, you know, this is, this is, this is life-saving. So I hope it is, mm -hmm. you know, but if it isn't for a person, then just toss it aside. It's not the Bible. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, you know, one sinful person's attempt to, um, you know, to use the American expression, you know, to, to, to God laid it on my heart. So I wrote it, but uh, I don't have any particular, um, it's not, it's not a company that I'm afraid is going to go bankrupt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just, I think it's a good book. A lot of parishes are reading it. I think it's helpful for Americans and that's what I am. I'm an American. Orthodox Christian and I, I think it's I think that's who it is I mean when you get to the final chapter and we're talking about the reconciliation of science with religion and why Warren Buffett uses a beauty first approach to investing <laughs> it's it's for an American it's not necessarily for written it's not written for a Byzantine <laughs> well that was Dr. Timothy Petitus I hope you enjoyed this conversation thank you for joining us today Dr. Petitus' focus on establishing right patterns of life was pretty interesting. Like routines, the patterns we create help define our life. They can either draw us closer to God or away from Him. You can learn more about our guest by checking out our show notes. If you found this conversation fruitful, please subscribe and share with us what you enjoyed about this episode. Until next time, I'm Father Christian, and this was Hidden Lives.